welcome to this episode of Saintly Witnesses, where I talk to the Catholic behind the account. Today I'm speaking with Vanessa Zuleta Goldberg, who's going to come on and talk about her faith journey in the Catholic Church, and also shed some very important information uh, about, you know, the issues of the common good and human dignity in our church. So definitely thank you for coming on and uh, sharing with us this crucial information. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So just a little bit about uh, Vanessa. You know, she's always on social media and on other platforms, you know, advocating for essentially the core of the seven themes of the Catholic social teaching. And she just really is a fire brand in the church. Um, and with advocacy and like her ministry online for social justice is powerful. So uh, let's get started. Uh, first question, um, are you a cradle Catholic, revert or convert to the Catholic church? And uh, share a little bit about your story. Like how was it in, in the beginning, middle life and how that led you to now? So uh, cradle Catholic, mom and dad were Catholic. Um, my dad came here from Colombia at 11. My mom came from Puerto Rico at 14. Um, and for both of them, faith was kind of part of that journey. Uh, they, when they met, like, you know, they got married in the church. They were very um, intentional about wanting to raise a family in the church. And so I'm the eldest of, of three and uh, our whole lives were in some sort of a church context. I mean, my mom worked in the church. We always joked that she should just like have her own room there because we were there all the time, whether it was for a fundraising uh, or the soup kitchen or youth group or practicing with the choir. I mean, there was always a reason why we were at church sometime during the week after school. Um, and, and church for me, growing up was it was kind of like my playground like because I was there all the time um so I grew up in this very beautiful um I believe it was French Canadian built church in in Pawtucket Rhode Island uh, St. John the Baptist and that church was that church was my playground you know I I know that church like the back of my hand um it's it was my second home you know uh, we like I said we weren't just there on Sundays for mass uh we were there all the time and one thing that was very striking about that upbringing for me, too, was that we were very involved in the Hispanic community there. So I went to Spanish mass my entire life until really I went to college when I started going to English mass um, more frequently with, you know, my friends and my peers. But, you know, I, I was part of the choir. We sang in Spanish. I was a lector. I read in Spanish. I, there was this very intentional connection between, you know, the culture that I was brought up in, the language that was my first language and the language of, you know, my forefathers and foremothers um, and the way in which that was very natural for me when it came to the faith. It was very natural for me to sing Spanish hymns. It was very natural for me to hear the guitar at church. Um, and that has all been something that I have carried with me and it wasn't until I became an adult that I really started to see the beauty of that experience that we had growing up in the church uh, with a, a very integrated kind of Hispanic culture to it, um, where I started to see like so much of, of the way in which I saw church, so much in the way in which I, I went on later to study theology. So, so much in the way in which I also studied theology and brought up questions in the classroom. It was all coming from that background. Um, it was all coming from this place of, how my grandmothers did church and then passed it on to my parents and then our parents passed it on to us. Um, so I'm very thankful for that upbringing. Uh, it was definitely 
uh, not a very popular upbringing, as, you know, as a teenager. And I think there were definitely a lot of moments where I did find myself resenting it and wishing that, you know, we weren't such big church people. Um, but it, it, it shaped me. It, it made me into who I am today. And um, I'm very thankful for that. I'm very thankful for the gift that that was in my life. I love the uh, generational aspect that you said. Uh, I think that's something yeah. beautiful to be highlighted in uh, how the faith is lived out in family. So definitely thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, so do you sure. both have a, you have a, a master's and a bachelor's in mm-hmm. theology. So you studied the faith academically and you've lived yes. the faith. Um, so what would you say to someone who is discerning the Catholic church or thinking like, hey, I'm thinking the Catholic church may be the spot for me. Yeah, I'd say, you know, the biggest thing I would say is, you know, don't be afraid to, to ask any and every question um, because there's so much beauty in our faith and there's so much space in our theology that, you know, you, we really are about being a table that welcomes everyone to, to that space. Um, so don't be afraid, you know, to, to ask the questions that maybe, you know, because you maybe didn't grow up cradle Catholic are wondering like, how is this done within tradition, within teaching, within doctrine, um, because asking those questions makes space for you to grow and also makes space for the Holy Spirit to really, um, find a place kind of within you in that, in, in that journey. Um, and you start to become more acclimated with the spirit's rhythms and gifts as you start to um, kind of find your footing and saying, you know, I, I'm thinking about coming to the faith, but these are the things maybe that I'm a little worried about, or these are the things that I don't know much about. Asking those questions, uh, you know, trying to find people who will make the space for you to have that dialogue. I think that's so crucial and so important. And, and, and just ask for real life, you know, examples. The faith is this very organic daily lived experience. It is not, uh, it is not this like running through the fields kind of experience every day. Sometimes it like, you know, is really hard and um, you can feel a real sense of hopelessness sometimes in it, but there is still this beauty of pursuing. And so I think if you can find people that can be very genuine with you about what that pursuit looks like, it it makes it real for you so I would say you know uh you know try to find those people that are willing to have those real combos with you about what faith like looks like definitely good advice for anybody discerning the church asking questions and being connected with other people who can steer you in the right path uh good good points Uh, so let's go into the next topic where we explore you know what I like to refer to you as as like the speaking and like online ministry that you have regarding like economic mm-hmm. and social justice. Um, so I noticed online, you frequently post strong messages, you know, advocating social and economic justice, all rooted in like a Catholic perspective. Um, mm-hmm. How and why did you start doing this like form of ministry? Yeah, I think for me, um, one of the things that I had to break out of in having grown up cradle Catholic was um, there was just this assumption that um, the way we did it, you know, the way we did church, the way in which we talked about church was always like the final kind of say. But when you study theology, you know, academically and you study the structure of what it means to be church, you know, we know that Christ was this perfect 100% human, 100% uh, divine being who leaves this this reality of church with very imperfect people um and sometimes it's 
the imperfection and our own failings and our own uh, attachment to the nature of sin that can seep into even these very um, holy places and cause hurt and cause pain or alienation to certain groups or certain people in that space. And um, I think growing up, I just, I was always kind of the goody two shoes and never wanted to ask like the tough questions because I never wanted to get in trouble. I always assume like asking tough questions means getting in trouble, which still gets me in trouble today, but I'm much more uh, fine with getting in trouble now that I was at 16. But um, it wasn't until I went to grad school, I was already at that point in my life, it was my early 20s, I was having a real big uh, racial reckoning within myself um, and realizing in ways in which I, as a Latina, had perpetuated uh, previously anti-Black stereotypes and narratives and biases and how I had not stood at all with you know my Black brothers and sisters inside and outside of the church and a lot of that racial reckoning was coming out of work that I was doing for my graduate thesis. And I realized I had a lot of like repentance and active reconciliation I had to do. There was a lot that I had to um, educate myself on. There was a lot that I had to uh, relearn. There was a lot of rewiring that had to happen within me because of these internalized biases that I had held for so long. And uh, it was during that process that I, alongside that kind of racial reckoning within me, I started to also have that same type of reckoning with the way in which the church had hurt members of the body of Christ. And so for me, the way in which that kind of unfolded was I, the summer before my second year of grad school, I was a campus minister at the Pontifical University in Santiago, Chile. And I was there all summer. And it was like my first or second week there that this major scandal broke out with all the Chilean bishops uh, and they kind of had their own situation of just sexual abuse within the church that had been hidden for so long break out. And I believe it was a Friday or something like that where um, they all resigned, all of them, every single bishop in Chile resigned from their position. They all gave their resignations to Pope Francis and they essentially said, you know, you you have the information now of all the you know um secret bad stuff that happened you also have all our resignations you can kind of see who fell what and where you decide in rome who stays and who goes so who's whose resignation you accept and whose you don't and that was very striking to see um because that is unheard of like you like especially in the states you know bishops are seen kind of as these untouchables um and and to so to see that as like a lay person as a lay woman in the church where this entire body uh or this entire part of the church was like we screwed up and maybe not all of us were part of that screw up but in some way shape or form we influenced or impacted those situations so we're all going to take full responsibility and we're going to leave it up to you know those above us to discern how best to handle this and so that was very striking to see in Chile. And then the day I came back from Chile, the day I landed back in Boston, the grand jury report came out from the Archdiocese of, I believe, Philadelphia, which was a massive, um, just a massive blow of just the secrecy and the pain and the abuse that had come from people in positions of power in, in the Church of the United States. And those things were just so close to each other that I remember I had this this anger in me where I was like 
how is it that this happened? We let it happen for so long. We hurt so many people. We alienated so many people through this abuse. And where's the accountability? You know, where's where's the the um, the act of reconciliation? The call for you know realizing that our actions have uh, consequences, and those consequences are there because they remind us of you know what we did and how not to do that again. And I think for me, that's when with those two things aligned, you know, what I was seeing happening in the church in the United States, and then also what was happening just within me personally, um, is when I really started to say, I'm going to start to enter into spaces that can maybe give me the tools to process and handle this anger and, and the tools and process to hang, handle the frustration I feel with the church right now. And that's where I started to learn about, um, you know, just basic tenets of economic justice, social justice, both inside and outside of church narratives. And really that's where I started to learn more about a liberation theology, which for me, uh, I have I have had several moments in the last few years where um, I just feel so hopeless in the church that there are very few things that keep me kind of moving forward. You know, one of them for me is the Eucharist. And then another one right now has been just reading and studying liberation theology and, and that journey of studying this type of theology, which is very rooted in economic justice, uh, started in, in, in that summer um, before my second year of grad school. So that's kind of what, like, just kind of, I felt what was my initial takeoff was, you know, this reckoning within myself and this need to hold myself accountable. And then this reckoning outside of myself and this need to hold this this structure outside of myself accountable and how those two were deeply influenced with each other. Sounds like a lot of like moving parts that influenced you yeah. to, you know, wake up and, and speak up. So definitely good to hear. Yeah. Um, so you highlighted um, liberation theology, which is going to come into the next yeah. question. And I'm assuming that you've read... Um, Gustavo Gutierrez's yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Theology of Liberation, which has influenced your, your work a lot. So yeah. when we talk about liberation theology, you know, it has like a, a negative connotation in Christianity. Yeah. Um, why do you think libera liberation theology is a framework that needs to be embraced in the church? Yeah, so um, it's so funny because it wasn't until I started reading liberation theology that I realized my Catholic upbringing within the Hispanic circles in my community were liberating theology based. We just didn't know that. Um, so I feel like I kind of joke that liberation theology has been with me from the beginning, but it's only recently that I've become aware of its presence. But I think a lot of, at least for me, when I first learned about liberation theology, a lot of the backlash that I got from other people in my life was um, this real fear of any or you know large or small connection it has um, with uh, other economic type of propositions. One of them being you know Marxism. And I at that point in my life really only knew like talking points. Like you know you kind of hear about it when you're you know in your liberal arts college. You hear about things like communism, socialism, and Marxism, and you kind of get the talking head points. But unless you're very intentional or take a very intentional class that dives deeper, you know, you usually don't really get into the nitty gritty of what each of these different economic propositions um, are, are proposing uh, in, in their time and place. And so I didn't touch liberation theology for a long time because I felt like touching it was like opening Pandora's box. 
And if I opened it, then everyone was going to know it was me who opened it. And then I'd get in trouble. And it wasn't until about, uh, you know, about maybe two years ago that I started to really start to intentionally read the works of people like Gustavo Gutierrez, John Sobrino, the homilies of St. Oscar Romero, um, Leonard Boff, all these, these liberating theologians, so theologians who were part of the kind of um, birth of this praxis of liberation theology, reading them and being very intentional about praying for the Holy Spirit to take away any fear that I had about reading them so that fear would not blind me to whatever truth these narratives did hold for us as Catholics to tap into. And um, I think that, you know, one of the things I have learned in studying theology is theology is influenced by social context because we are, we are flesh people living in a flesh world, you know, and so all, all these things outside of the church still have some sort of impact, influence, connection to inside the church type of realities because we live in the world, you know, we live our daily lives. And so one of the things I realized um, about liberation theology is that, you know, if you only work with the talking heads or the talking points about it and really don't dive into it, of course, it's going to seem like this very scary thing because liberation theology can feel like a threat to some people because of its framework. And it's a framework that holds us accountable to the way in which we live in the world among the you know with the poor and it's a framework that is very intentional about saying god does not live in the power structures he lives in the margins and that can be a very threatening thing to hear especially you know in the united states where we are known as this world power and growing up in the united states that's kind of taught to you from the get-go that we are this first world power you know we're we're the the home front of democracy all these things you know that are very um rooted in a power structure like mentality and so when something comes along that threatens that power structure i think we become very scared and we become very hesitant to even want to dive into it and so i think that's where i saw a lot of the fear of liberation theology. Um, a lot of people will say it's a, a heresy. It is not a heresy. It has never been deemed a heresy by the Vatican. And there have been definitely interactions between the Vatican and liberation theologians in the past that were uh, constructive criticism in regards to the way in which liberation theology took into context different economic propositions like Marxism, but they've always been able to come to um, kind of a middle ground. And in fact, there's this interview that Pope Francis did a few years ago where he talks about how uh, those of those of them who were younger back when liberation theology was first taking onto the scene, they they laugh at how um, just how like serious they were about this theology when in reality it was very a lot most of its tenets are rooted if not all of its tenets are rooted in the truth of the gospel you know the truth that we believe in the magisterium of the church um so yeah i think i think for me where i found hope and faith in it was that this was a theology that was about um being with god's people and being with God's people did not have, you didn't have to have certain qualifications to be part of God's people. You just were like, because of your, your very being, you were part of this table. And when you live in a world, especially today, where everyone's trying to like build their own table, but do it in a way where it's exclusive and, you know, keep certain people out, 
finding this type of theology was very um, just life-giving for me. And it gave me a lot of hope um, for how we can, you know, see God as a God for the poor, a God with the poor. Thank you for sharing that. That's such a good answer about the importance of liberation theology and using it as a framework in the church. Uh, so briefly, how do you think we change that stigma surrounding liberation theology in the church? You know, dialogue and, and not just dialogue, but also we invest in the things we care about. You know, uh, like, for example, I love the show WandaVision. I was so sad that it ended yesterday. And the finale had me just all over the place. Right. But there are thousands of us who for the last few weeks have been investing time every Friday in this show because we care about it. We have become attached to it. It, 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 it brings us some sort of whatever, you know, whether that's joy watching it or, you know, uh, the, the funny joke is like, I watch Wanda's trauma so that I don't have to deal with my own trauma kind of thing. Like, you know, but like we all took, we all have invested time in watching this show to the very end of its, you know, season one. And it's the same, it's the same way in, in breaking through false stereotypes of other things. You know, if we care about things, we invest and we put time in them. And it's not that hard, you know, to, um, you know, I'm always willing for people to kind of, you know, hit me up in my DMs and say, hey, you know, I have some concerns about liberation theology. I'm not a liberation theologian scholar, so I'm never going to sit there and act like it, but I'm willing to have the conversation with you and share what I have learned and maybe encourage us to both continue learning and continue dialoguing with each other and let that be a supplemental like learning experience. But I think one of the ways in which we can work through a lot of the falsehoods that have been promoted about liberation theology is to just make time to just learn about it um, and, and to read from those who lived by this theology so much so that, you know, someone like St. Oscar Romero, he was killed for this theology. Um, he was an advocate of liberation theology. You read his homilies that he broadcasted on the radio in El Salvador every Sunday, you know, like his homilies were packed with this God who is a God of the poor, a God who is at the margins with the people. And it literally cost him his life. And that, that has to say something, you know, cause we only get one life. So, you know, it, it, it literally cost him everything. And yet he gave his life so diligently for that. There must have been a reason why, you know? Um, and so I think like educating ourselves, making time to learn and entering into dialogue, even if you might not agree with all of it, that's totally fine. I didn't agree with all parts of liberation theology when I first started reading it. Um, and I realized I needed to let it challenge me. You know, I think we're afraid to be challenged nowadays. Um, but, but we can't because it's in those spaces when we're challenged that the spirit actually can produce great fruit for future, you know, just engagement with other people within the body of Christ. Yeah, thank you for sharing that information. Um, so we've talked about liberation theology. We talked about the seven themes of Catholic social teaching. Um, all these things are centered around human dignity and the common good. Uh, yeah. So what are your hopes you know, for the church that you'd like to see happen, whether they be like attitudes change, addressing issues yeah. that are interrelated with uh, Catholicism. Like, what are some of your hopes that you want to see? I know it's yeah, probably I mean, a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a long list now. Uh, I think just off the top of my head, I just, I just want the church, and that includes all of us, to take accountability in the way in which we have hurt parts of the body of Christ. Um, because I, we, we cannot... 
you know, bear fruit on a soil that we refuse to till and work on in order for it to be, you know, ready to hold that seed and nourish that seed and protect that seed. We, we can't produce fruit if we're not willing to put in the work to create an environment that is um, conducing for that fruit to be born. And, and, and that, re that means, you know, realizing like there are spaces, there are places, there are positions in the hierarchy of the church that have been weaponized against people, against um, marginalized and oppressed and those at the margins. And we need to realize that and, and take full accountability for that, seek active repentance from that. And I truly believe once we start doing that, we're going to see a shift. We're going, you know, I feel like right now we're missing the mark um, and we're missing the mark because we're hiding behind things like, oh, this is cancel culture or, oh, like, why do I have to hold myself accountable for someone else? And it's like, what does Jesus say in the gospels? Love your neighbor, you know? And that the qualification of love your neighbor means love your neighbor even past your own personal fear of what loving your neighbor can mean for you, you know? And I, I hope we reach a place where those in power in our church will make space to listen to actual people in the church who live this experience day in and day out and listen to their laments, listen to their grievances, and make space for that to transform into restorative justice, make space for that to transform into a theology that is liberating for all people. And that's what I love about liberation theology, just ending kind of going back with that is Gustavo Gutierrez is very intentional about saying he doesn't want to have created a theology that like, it's like, here you have the Catholic church theology, right? Like a big kind of umbrella. And then liberation theology is like kind of over here. No, no, he wants all of what we believe as church. He hopes for all of what we believe as church to become liberation theology so much so that, you know, we don't even need to call it liberation theology anymore because it just is the theology of the gospel of our faith, you know? And, um, and that for me brings me a lot of hope. Um, and, and really young people, I have been finding my, I have been finding my energy, my hope, my source for moving forward in young people um, and their resiliency and their, um, and using their voice to be advocates for one another and learning and, and reacting in regards to solidarity. Um, I know, I know sometimes we love to kind of knock on young people and say like, oh, they spend so much time on their phones. You know, I have learned so much about how to be a person who stands in solidarity with other people through young people like posting on TikTok. You know, I have learned so much from just that space. So you know what, they can keep posting all they want because they are doing something right, let me tell you. So um, yeah, I think, I think those three things, you know, we need to be, we need to practice active reconciliation. We need to realize that, um, our God is a God that wants us all to be fully liberated and in, in that liberation, be able to fully participate in all the beauty that is salvation history. And we need to listen to the voices in the church. And one of those voices is young people. Um, and to not be afraid of, you know, what those things can bring, because they can bring a lot of hope. Yeah, definitely a good point. And you just touched on the importance of solidarity and like listening to others. Uh, definitely yeah. something we can always do. Um, so talk a little bit about the Pentecost revival in Latino youth. I've never heard yeah. of that. And I, and I read that that's something that you concentrate in or you focus on. So what is that? And talk a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah. So that was actually my thesis uh, in grad school. I 
from a theological perspective, I talked about how I truly believe there is a Pentecostal movement. Back then, I limited it to Hispanic youth. But um, right now, if I had a chance to kind of rewrite parts of it, I would say I, I truly believe there's a Pentecostal movement happening with BIPOC youth in America. And I think that, um, you know, for, for a while, we've been in kind of that upper room space in the church in the United States, kind of fearful of the outside, feel fearful of what uh, opening the windows would bring. And I think that the windows have been opened and they've been opened for young people because young people have this beautiful ability to um, make space in places where maybe space is not welcome um, because they love to take up space. That's, that's just, when you're a young person, you love to take up space because when you take up space, that means someone sees you, someone hears you, someone loves you. So you wanna take up space, right? And um, I truly believe there is this Pentecostal Type a Holy Spirit current kind of making its way across the United States and really globally in our uh, BIPOC youth in the church. Um, mainly from, you know, when I first was writing it, I was seeing it uh, a lot in the teens that I worked with and realizing how I was learning more from them than they could possibly learn from me because they were just so much more in tune with life around them, where I was just caught up in this daily, you know, the daily hassle, the daily grind, you know, and so you kind of forget that there's this whole other life happening. And, um, and so that's kind of where that grew, you know, talking about how back then when I was talking about Hispanic youth, how faith is carried for first, second and third generation Latino, Latina youth in America through um, movements of immigration and migration, and what those movements have done to the encounter and experience of faith um, and how it connects us back to our ancestors and, and, and to our mother tongue and to our origins as, as a community, as a people. And then now elaborating even more on that, you know, talking about how um, that Pentecostal movement, you know, what's so highlighting about Pentecost is that there isn't ever an interaction in that story where you know, Peter or one of the apostles is confronted by anyone there and they, you know, try to kick them out or say, ah, you're not worthy of receiving, you know, the gospel message or you know, like everyone, everyone that is there, like can hear what Peter is saying in their own language. And there's something theologically so profound about that reality that there's not one person who stands in that crowd who is like, wait, you all understand him? Cause I don't, you know, like everyone has a place at that table to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And young people are so adamant about being makers of tables that are structurally built like that, where everyone has a place to be heard, seen and loved. And so I think that we can, we're definitely seeing rhythms of the Holy Spirit in this generation um, that if we tune into them, if we make space for them, there's so much that can come forth from them. And that gives me a lot of hope. Um, and also, I love the story of Pentecost. I mean, that is such a like, that's a killer story. You know, it's such a great, such a great story in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, so yeah, I think that's really where it came from was my own background, being a daughter of immigrants, uh, having friends who were children of immigrants, sharing our realities, sharing our experiences, 
And then now, you know, seeing it from a place of, of adulthood and seeing how, um, you know, how I was impacted as a young person and then how as an adult, young people still impact me and how that that is a, a movement of the spirit working among us. Definitely good to know. Never uh, would have considered that, but it sounds like you did a lot of great uh, research <laughs> for your master's thesis on this topic. So thank yeah, you for sharing thank that information. You. So, so you've blessed us with a lot of great content on so many different things from your faith journey, liberation theology, and just the content that you shared about the Pentecostal movement in Latino youth and really just uh, the uh, BIPOC youth. Um, so I'm wondering... Uh, last question is who was a favorite saint and why? Saint Oscar Romero. <laughs> Sorry, he's he's he's. Uh, I I absolutely love him. Um, saint Oscar Romero for me is I I feel like we would be besties in heaven. Like I feel like we would really vibe together. Um, but he he's he's the type of saint that for me holds me accountable. Like when I read his homilies. Uh, they really challenge me. They really dig deep. They really make me try to tap into the spiritual. They, they make me tap into how I am being the hands and feet of Christ in my daily experience. Um, and he was just, he was the man, you know, of and for the people. Um, I'll end with this story that I always love to share about him. Um, my best friend was in El Salvador the week that uh, Pope Francis announced the date for his canonization. And they were in this little village that St. Oscar Romero frequently visited. And, you know, they made, they would, he would have, you know, breakfast with the village people, they'd make him coffee, you know, all that stuff. He would hang out with them. So they knew him very, very well. And she happened to be in that village the day that it was announced over the radio from the Vatican that St. Oscar Romero was going to be canonized the saint on this and this date. And so her and all the other students from America who were there, you know, they started cheering. They were like, oh, wow, like how amazing is it that we're in El Salvador, like in this village when this is announced? And she said that it was so striking. They noticed instantly that like they were the only ones like losing their minds, like celebrating. So they asked the people, they were like, why aren't you guys like, you know, up, up in like cheers and stuff like that? Like this, this was one of you guys, like, why aren't you guys celebrating? And this older woman from the village, she says to them in Spanish, she said, you know, we always knew this was going to happen. We were just waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. And that just like, it gives me goosebumps because the impact that he must have had, the relationships he held with his people were so profound that it was prophetic in a way. It was prophetic about who he was called to be. It was prophetic about the impact and, and the 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 space he was going to open within our church context. It was so prophetic that he was able to share it with others. And they carried that prophetic nature up into the point of this very day when the rest of the world would finally catch up. And, um, and I just love that. I love that about the type of man, the type of person he was. Definitely a good witness that the local residents noticed yeah. about um, this saint. So definitely important, an important figure in the Latin American church yeah. too, who has, you know, blessed us with his great wisdom on the topic of liberation theology. Yes. Um, well, this is going to conclude this interview. And I definitely appreciated you sharing, a, sharing so much information and a lot of different moving parts. And it's just really been enriching to hear you know, your story and also your wisdom that you've acquired over the years on you know, human you. dignity, common and good and justice. So definitely thank you.
Thank you for having me. This was great. I, I really appreciated being on here with y'all. Yeah, for sure. Well, you guys continue to pray for Vanessa's work in her ministry and advocacy and pray that that goes well. And that's going to conclude this episode of Saintly Witnesses. And you guys can tune in for the next episode. <laughs>